So today we're going to be covering uh, problematic laws. And uh, some of the really good examples are Exodus 21 and 22. Um, there's a few laws in there that we'll cover that, you know, some people, if all you do is read verses, you know, which you should never... There's times where pulling out a single verse or two it can be appropriate, but that shouldn't most of the time be how you do Bible studies. You know, you don't want to just pull out um, one-liners from Paul from different epistles, put them together, and they're they're only the ones that make you feel really good about yourself or really bad about yourself. You know, like that. Okay, there may be a time where that's sort of edifying if you're going on a theme. But like for the most part, when you study scripture, you have to actually read the whole chapter. Uh, but these are ones where, you know, if you have your online atheists and, you know, they're saying, did you stupid Christians know that the Bible says in the Old Testament that you can have slaves and all this? And it's like, OK, well, let's actually this is one where saying, OK, context actually is a little bit more important. Not that it's a cop-out of just saying, well, you have to understand the context and then not explain it. But we'll actually look at that. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely a few in 21 and 22 that off the bat, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, we don't do dowries anymore in the modern world. And we'll talk about that. Like what actually was a dowry and a bride price? And could those things actually be beneficial for investing in the future of families and generations. Uh, not saying I expect this class to like, we'll bring them back, but maybe thinking more about the next generation in a way of like, hey, we're going to be investing in the next generation. So we should su support our young couples. And then if we have time, we'll go to uh, Exodus chapter four, which is the weird one weird story about, you know, the weird circumcision where I know some eyes were like, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, but when Moses was going back to Egypt. So we'll see if we get there. But let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have called us out of slavery and into the marvelous light, where you call us sons and daughters because of your son. Grant us strength and wisdom to live in true freedom as slaves of righteousness. Grant us understanding in the diligent study of your word, which all points to the cross and the empty grave of, grave of your son. Amen. All right, so the first uh, couple laws, they are what we would say the slavery laws. So if you have your Bible, you can uh, open up to Exodus 21, and I think it's just verse 1 too. But first I'm going to talk about, like, you know, slavery over the, I mean, hundreds of years, you know, throughout the course of the Bible. Uh I'll start with the New Testament, though, at the time of Christ. If there's, you know, one of the Greek words you may have heard somebody talk about before is doulos. And doulos is largely translated in the New Testament or in uh, the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is actually largely what we know they read uh, day to day during the time of Christ in the first century. Uh, but doulos has a wide semantic range. So sometimes it can be like slave in the sense of like somebody owns you and you legally are their property. And sometimes it's much more just servant to where it's um, almost used not in like the straight denotation, but uh, Paul and, and we'll, we'll get there too. But many times, like legally, doulos would be indentured servant. And even the idea today of indentured servitude, I think largely because of America's rough history with slavery, which was, I mean, absolutely, right? When we looked at the slavery in the history of America, there was, of course, that was unjust, right? That was... That wasn't indentured servitude. That was forcefully capturing people and selling them as property. Um, but a do loss largely, again, indentured servitude. And I'll paint this picture first. And we don't have too many young people here who this might apply to, but you probably know some people who would, if this was an option, absolutely go for indentured servitude. So imagine you have a college student or 
yeah, a college student doesn't really know what they want to do. So they get some absolutely horrible advice from their freshman counselor who is, you know, works for the business that is trying to sell them education hours and says, oh, your freshman year, just study general, you know, gen eds. Just take a bunch of random classes. You can figure out your major later. And then they're wish-washy and they change their major a couple of times. And who knows what they end up majoring in, you know, like basket weaving or just your generic business administration, which is actually my major, business administration. <laughs> and now I work in the energy world and I join the Navy. So like, okay. But imagine you're over $100,000 in debt. You have no employable skills. And then you're out there and you're like, how in the world did this happen? You know, you can't declare bankruptcy legally for education expenses. But imagine if a wealthy, good, like quote unquote master could buy your debt, but for six years you worked for them and you were legally and contractually bound to serve them. Now there would be rules, there would be a contract, but you... If you wanted to take vacation and they didn't approve it, you legally could not take vacation. But if that wiped out over $100,000 in debt and along the way you got an apprenticeship and they actually taught you some, you know, employable skills, that wouldn't be that bad of an idea. And here's the thing. I did that <laughs> when I joined the Navy. I signed, ironically, we're going to see it was limited to six years. I signed a six-year contract with the U.S. government, essentially. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, again, went to college. And college was a great experience. Of course, I, I met my wife. And I'm not saying I didn't grow or anything like that. I mean, obviously, I, especially the pre-seminary program, that's why I was there. But honestly, like the business side of things, I'm not saying I didn't learn any skills with my business administration degree. But let's be honest, like it still didn't leave me with a lot of employable skills in specifically in that regard. They don't even teach you how to start a business. So uh, that's not a knock on Concordia Seward. I loved my professors and it was a, it was a good experience and I grew up a lot. Don't get me wrong, but I can't win after we backpacked Europe and I came back, you know, it's like, what, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know? And that's what led me to, I understand I'm signing away a lot of my freedoms here. But, and this is exactly why I chose the nuclear power program. It sounded interesting. I qualified for it. And it, so it is. And it was super cool operating a submarine. You know, nuclear, nuclear reactor stuff, super cool. But like they legally could tell me what I had to do, but it was six years. That contract ended. I got out and I was a free man now and I was free. I'm allowed to quit whenever I want now. And I have employable skills to where I can go anywhere. So. Uh, and I met a lot of guys who joined the Navy who had a lot of debt and you could actually forego your signing bonus and you could get more money by them covering some debt rather than uh, just getting a cash payout for your signing bonus. So, but it's limited and there's a contract. So yeah, I would say I was an indentured servant by definition and, uh, but you don't get to see too much of that today. So that's do loss again in the New Testament, wide range of meanings. When you see Paul say like we were, we're, uh, we were slaves to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness. That's do loss. Uh, but there's other times where it's just in context. This person isn't like owned, but they're a servant. So again, do loss has a wide range. In Hebrew, I would say it's even a wider range. Oh yes, go ahead. Um, Paul was telling me, or I guess Paul's brother was telling me, when he went to the uh, Air Force Academy, that the first year students are called duallys. Uh, yeah. From that, yep. Because they basically have to do what anybody tells. Yeah, them. Air Force Academy first year called duallys from the Greek doulos. Um, in Hebrew, the word for servant that today is going to get translated slave is ebed. And here's the thing, even a wider semantic range to sound smart. Uh, in Exodus, in the beginning of Exodus, when it's talking about the Hebrews being slaves in Egypt, this is from Exodus chapter one, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So this is talking about the Hebrews. 
And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. This is Ebed again. And they made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So both the noun form and the verbal form is Ebed. And, uh, and there's a little bit of grammar in the verbs that I, a lot of this, man, I don't remember because you don't have tenses, you have moods in Hebrew. So they're like Cal and Hithpoel and it, it, you know, it gets pretty deep, but you know, you can use those different forms to have a different force of the root meaning of that verb. But my point is the core of this you know, again, can be hard slavery like we hear, see here, or it can be just servant. Uh, so here the verb form is like caused to serve harshly. But in a plenty of other places, it's, uh, it's just like working. So here's Genesis chapter 2. The same verb, ebed, is used. Talking about what God is charging Adam and Eve with doing. So 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. So did God create Adam, and again, this is pre-fall, to slave for him to keep the, you know, keep the garden? No, that's clearly not what's going on. So you have this semantic range of like just to work or to work forcefully, you know, as, as a slave. We might think about uh, right before the Exodus in Genesis, the last story, which really the culmination of all the stories of Genesis kind of lead up to Joseph. So Joseph uh, gets sold by his uh, brothers into slavery and he goes and he works as a, as a servant for Potiphar. So this is like, you know, slavery but now he still has this master but he doesn't quite seem to be a slave but that's just another example um and oh yeah so throughout the old testament anytime you see somebody say um referring to themselves from a position of inferiority to a superior even if it's only for a rhetorical purpose they'll say like let your servant do this so you know sometimes it's somebody to God, but other times it's like you're appealing to somebody and you want to show them honor. So you'll say, let your servant do this for you. And again, that's Ebed. So he's not saying, let me, you know, be your property and you can do whatever you want to me. So I'm just saying wide semantic range. It showed that term Ebed showed a range of social and economic roles and again, the extreme large majority of the time, it's simply translated servant. And the same is true for both the noun form and the verb form. I touched on this, but why would someone want to become an Ebed? All right, so I could say I became, right, an Ebed for the Navy. Uh, we know that there's laws against kidnapping and laws against the slave trade. <clears throat> Obviously, what Joseph's brothers did was wrong, and God did not say that was a good thing. But he was able to use the evil for good. So it's not kidnapping, right? It's, it's not uh, the slave trade. That is what we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a contractual agreement. And especially back then, imagine you're destitute. You know, you don't have the same types of insurance programs that we do. So having a good master would be a really good deal. I mentioned there's laws against kidnapping. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 24, 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel and treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So actually, the slave trade was a capital offense. <laughs> so obviously, that's not what's going to be going on in Exodus. <clears throat> and of course, there's a bunch of other laws about abusing your neighbor. Uh, there's also laws about protecting foreigners in your land. So uh, this will be in 22, verse 21. <clears throat> you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And that's a really big theme in scripture, supporting the, uh, the orphans and the widows. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. So, and again, before we uh, dive into chapter 21 here, last week I referenced uh, Revelation 18. And there's this telling point at the end of Revelation 18 where it's not, he doesn't use the word do loss. He uses a different word. Uh, but this is the destruction of Babylon. So in, in Revelation, Babylon, and throughout all of scripture, Babylon just kind of represents everything that's bad in the world. It represents rebellion from God for a bunch of different reasons, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, which is the same word, Babylon. You know, we just, I'm not sure why, because it's even spelled the same way. The Tower of Babel and then Babylon later, it's the same, same place. Uh, but yeah, it represents rebellion from God and uh, attacking, right? Like the, the ultimate enemy of the people of Israel. So here we go from the destruction. This is Revelation 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her in torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So if you're ever wrestling with like the imprecatory ideas that we did last week, you can always flip the revelation and remember that like in an eternal divine sense, this is already completed and it's already been destroyed. Right now, it's been destroyed through the death and resurrection of Christ. But on the last day, we will see this fulfilled in a much more real way. But anyway, here we go. Here's a list of all the things that the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, he just keeps going, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, and I'm sure you could find a bunch of biblical links to other things to where you meditate on this and Right. Uh, you can bring in other thoughts from scripture and compare them. But here we go. Wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. So he ends with slaves. And here's the interesting thing. Slaves here. It's not doulos. It's actually soma, which is the Greek word for body. And that was like the colloquially, uh, just the way you would say referring to a slave from the slave trade. They sold bodies. So it's literally bodies, that is, souls of men. Clearly frowned upon. So now, yeah, let's jump to the beginning of chapter 21 in Exodus. And we'll read our first law. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, and here's where it kind of gets weird, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Okay, obviously there's something kind of right weird, this context, we don't fully understand what's going on. But, um, well, I guess we'll start with the ear piercing. So let's say... Um, he served this guy for six years and he said, this is a good deal. I even, my master cares for me. I enjoy working for him. I'm in his household now. Like this is a good deal. I found a wife. I've got kids now. I don't want to leave his household. I want to stay part of his, uh, you know, his greater household. He can say, yeah, I'll work for this guy forever. 
and to show that he is a lifelong servant of this guy, here's where it's just a ritual. They'd even make it public, I guess. They'd go to the, the front of the house, right, to the doorpost, and they'd pierce his ear. And that would show him that <clears throat> he is going to serve this guy forever. Now, that doesn't mean all his con contractual and all the laws don't apply to him apply to him anymore. His master still has to treat him well. But that's what the end of this law is what's happening. So really, this whole thing is closer to a social safety net. And it's preventing exploitation from someone who's destitute or really desperate. Imagine that you've lost everything. Maybe house burns down and uh, raiders steal your flocks and all of a sudden you are completely destitute. And there's essentially like, there's no way out of this. And you had debts. Maybe you invested in a bunch of stuff. So you still have these debts. What are you going to do? You know, there's no insurance program where you just, you know, they borrow a bunch of money from the bank and then that gets paid out and it goes into everybody's premiums. Um, no. So here you could then have somebody like this master buy your debt and then for six years, it limits it to six years. Because if you're really in a desperate situation and you say like, I'm on the verge of starvation and my family too or whatever, you'd be willing to sign any sort of contract. So by limiting it to six years, it prevents exploitation of somebody taking advantage of someone who's truly desperate and signing a contract that they otherwise would not have signed. that same sort of language so when it says uh, when you buy a Hebrew slave it's simply saying the verb for buy is saying that money is changing hands which of course there is when I when we closed on our house finally we actually we bought 10 acres and we built a home and then the final mortgage after it was appraised and everything the I remember the banking the banker telling me that yeah we always sell our notes you know, so we, we start them and we get in that business. But then honestly, we're probably going to sell this note within a couple of months. So I had to do, you know, more paperwork because new mortgage company owned it. And then like six months later, they sold the note again. I'm like, quit selling this note. It's so frustrating, you know, setting up new automatic payments and all this. But we use similar language with uh, buying and selling debts or bonds or things like that. And then again, so when you buy... When there's money changing hands, a Hebrew slave. So again, this is just Ebed. And does this sound like going out and capturing somebody and forcing them to work for you as the property? No. So in my opinion, and this is not just because I want to make the text fluffier. I think the translation slave does a disservice to the text. Indentured servant. I think that's a phrase that we all know. You know, I know my first interaction with that phrase, I want to say, man, it goes back to like fourth grade when we were studying um, early America. You know, a lot of people who would come over, and this could be way off. This is just what I remember. But indentured servitude was a thing. And it was, you know, again, you have a contract and you're working for somebody and you sign away a lot of your rights in doing that. So... Yeah, they buy a debt. And then the marriage thing. Okay, that probably gives us a little bit of a... Okay, so the master gets to like still own the children. What's going on? So, again, let's say you're working for this master and he has lots of servants and you guys fall in love. <laughs> and you want to start a family because back then, they had honestly, they probably had a higher view of families and children. So, um, you meet somebody... And you get married, and she also is in the middle of a contract with this guy. 
you know, a six-year contract. Just because she gets married, let's say she has four years left on her contract. Just because she gets married, it's not a get out of four years of my, you know, contract that I agreed upon free card. She still has to finish that contract. Um, but he does have to allow them to get married. So you can see at the end, I mean, it, when you say that, it all, it all plays out that way. Um, it doesn't mean that his wife doesn't get to when her six years are up and her contract or make a similar agreement. Like, well, of course, you know, the same rules apply. So again, what, what initially sounds just so rough in English because we don't have this sort of, you know, you can't sell yourself into indentured servitude for six years to have your debts wiped out. But if you did, It'd be like, yeah, just because you get married doesn't mean that you now don't have to fulfill your contractual agreements. Yeah. Oh, and about all of these laws. These are all if-then laws. So this is not holding this up as the ideal of society. Uh, and the extreme large majority of our laws are like, the, like this too. Uh, if you burgle somebody's house then this happens. We're not saying that like you're, you know, sanctioning burglary. In fact, it's saying like this is less than an ideal situation. And, you know, uh, bankruptcy. We have lots of bankruptcy laws. I've got a friend right now that the idea of bankruptcy for him is actually like going to be a good thing. So won't tell the whole story, of course. And actually, I hope he listens to this. <laughs> but when he gets through what he's going through, uh, on the other side, he's going to be able to declare bankruptcy and start over, and it's going to be a relief. So we have laws that are like, of course, bankruptcy isn't the ideal, and we don't write those laws because like, oh, I just don't want to pay my debts, so I'm going to declare bankruptcy and start over. Of course, you can't do that. It has to be approved. There's rules to it, but it's less than ideal. All right, any questions on that one? <coughs> Yeah, on those contracts, at any point, anybody can buy their way out of those contracts in slavery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, That's, you got somebody else who yep. says, I robbed that person, they can buy that contract. Or if, <coughs> if you get the means, you can buy your contract back. So the word slavery is interesting because that does not tell you that you can actually buy your contract back. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're going to see this. The next one sounds a little worse. Uh, if all you did was read these verses in English and we'll see that as it specifically says that the family's allowed to buy the person to buy them out of the contract. Um, yeah. So that, that's a really good point too. Yeah. You can voluntarily buy your way out of it. If you come up with the means. What about the kids? Are they now slaves to the master because he's. So I don't think so during the time that their parents are, yeah. you know, but they belong to the parents. <laughs> Um, which would, yeah, I mean, it limited, but what can a four, five-year-old really do? But it doesn't, the kids are, I think the main point is the kids aren't also a get out of debt free card, you know? Uh, but I mean, I'm not going to say I know that for sure. It could very well be that their contracts say that kids, it's not like you don't have access to them or they couldn't live with their parents or be raised by their parents. I mean, it's not like our world today where you can, like me, I grew up in Southern Illinois near St. Louis. I moved to South Carolina, then Washington State. We lived in Nebraska, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and now now Texas, and we planted roots in Texas. But like, it's not like you're going to be moving away. You know, they were all of Israel was together in the same place. But like with the kids, though, it's also, a even though they, when they had them as slaves, it's also a contract obligation for the master to make sure the kids are taken care of. Yes. So, and we'll see so that in the next law too. That's is, the protection of the children. Yeah. It protects situation. the vulnerable. And the next one, oh, I mean, let's just read it. Uh, Cause it's, it's one where at first it just feels worse, but then after we talk about it, you'll say like, that's actually pretty awesome that they have these rules. So anyway, verse seven, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, already off the bat, what we talked about, oh my goodness, why do they, 
I think, okay, I'll stop now and say this. I think one of the reasons, like the ESV committee or the NASB, whatever it is, the committees when they do translations, if they softened this language too much, they would get accused of just that, of, you know, trying to get around the text, of skirting the text, of being too liberal or something like that. And, but the thing is, there's this context does warrant a little bit more of a discussion, right? So anyway, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not dis- d- diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So again, off the bat, this one feels worse, but there's actually this backdrop assumption that she is marrying into the family. So uh, the female uh, version of Ebed is actually Ama. Not that this really matters. It's basically the same thing. But again, not a slave. Uh, so here's an example of where Ama is used in obviously not a slave situation. So Exodus 2.5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. So here's one clearly servant, but even that really isn't what's going on in what we just read. But I read that just to say, again, this is a wide range. This isn't just the word for a female slave. The law specifically says she can't just be tossed aside. And it specifically says, right, these three things, if she doesn't, if he doesn't do these three things for her, she's allowed contractually to just leave. So now I guess we should talk about, um, in the ancient cult- culture, yes, fathers arranged marriages, but it wasn't, you know, and I'm sure there were many, again, wide range of how this actually went down, but it was more the father is supposed to take care of his daughter's future. So yes, there were dowries and there were bride prices. And a dowry was the money that the woman's family would raise to help her. It would follow her into the new family to help her start a family. And the bride price was from the groom's family to pay the bride's family to help cover the cost of the dowry. So it's like, why would families just pay each other? You know? (laughs) Well, it's because this money was set aside to protect her in starting this new family. And money changed hands in this arranged marriage because it was both families investing in the next generation, which I actually think is a beautiful thing. So, again, I'm not saying that, like, we're going to start doing this. We're not. But (laughs) one of the ways that we can read these Old Testament laws when you ask, okay, and we may actually talk about this uh, much later in the class, but what laws apply to us? How do we know in the Old Testament what still applies to us and what doesn't and what should we follow? Well, uh, I think the answer, it's both pretty simple, but also then leaves you wanting a lot more. The answer is in some ways, all of them, and in another way, none of them. So (laughs) Jesus does this pretty well, where like on the Sermon on the Mount, he hears, or he says like, you have heard, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth or whatever, but I tell you, and then he gives you the wisdom of what that law represented. Uh, He does it with the Sabbath, you know? Okay, You've got these Old Testament Sabbath laws, and it's a little different because the Pharisees, uh, when they came back from exile, they took it too far. We say fencing in the Torah, and they made a bunch of new rules 
that were even more restrictive. And then they still called it the law. And Jesus is saying, look, you're missing the point. If all you're doing is legalistically trying to make God happy by following the rules and not actually looking for the wisdom that the rules represented. Uh, so yeah, he does it with the Sabbath and then, um, oh yeah, hating your neighbor and uh, adultery. You know, so when they ask him about like, can we divorce our wives or, you know, ask him about adultery, he says, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. So he is looking at the intent and the wisdom of the law and applying it to the modern day. So with that in mind, when we're thinking about, you know, here we go, the uh, protecting the vulnerable, because quite honestly, in this situation, most likely what is happening is the master is, it's almost as if he's being generous in this situation because this family can't afford a dowry. But they still want her to have a future and to have children because you're also in a culture where like today, I mean, how much do we value children today? You know, falling in love and getting married. It's all about two people falling in love. And that's even in the church, we've made it about that. And I'm not saying it's not about that, but there's also this looking forward to starting a new family. Now, again, you know, like I know some incredible couples that can't have kids. And uh, in fact, my Greek professor from college, I'm not going to cry thinking about him, but my Greek professor in college, uh, his wife had Huntington's disease. She passed away a few years ago. And so they couldn't have kids. And they tried adopting multiple times and they kept getting turned down because of the Huntington's disease. And you listen to him talk about it. It'll tear your heart out because, you know, it tore her heart out. She wanted kids so bad. But God had other plans for them. But for the most part, all things being equal, when we look at a new family, it's not just about two people falling in love and then having fun together forever. It's about thinking about like, you know, children are a blessing of the Lord, right? Uh, a heritage. So blessed is the man who fills his quiver full of them because children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So uh, they had that view of children. And we really don't today. So the idea of like, oh, I'm going to sell my, my daughter off so she can produce kids for somebody. No. I'd, I'd imagine the large majority of women would want to have children, would be looking forward to fulfilling one of the most beautiful and God-pleasing things that, like, one of the main reasons he created women, right? Because men can't be mothers. Only women can be mothers. And it's like the Luther said, it's the most important job in the world, right? Like, the reason I go to work and I do all my stuff is to support my wife to uh, raise the kids. Because that's, like, the most important thing. So that's the kind of view that they had of it. Um, yeah, so the father would arrange marriages and there'd normally be a dowry. So we talked about there'd be a financial transaction going on and it would be both families investing in their new family together in that relationship, providing for their future and setting them up. So slave is definitely not the right word in English. And like I said, quite frankly here, the family, the, the woman's family can't afford this dowry. So the man even without a dowry, right, is going to accept this young woman into their lives, either for himself or for his son, arranging a marriage like he did. And if they don't meet the stipulations, she's allowed to go. And if he's treating her poorly, it, it I guess, you know, there's levels here. Uh, if it's not working out initially, then the family is allowed to, you know, pay whatever the remainder, however it worked, pay that bride price back and she could go back to their family. So also, I mean, some of the, the way it, it translates, um, let's see if she does not please her master. Okay. It sounds like she's not doing her job, but really this is most literally if her master isn't being the image of God and isn't treating this young woman the way she's supposed to be, 
and she isn't pleasing him. You know, she's not, he's not happy with the situation, even though he should be, you know, he should be that he agreed to this real men make it work. Right. So, um, but it's not working out. She's allowed to be redeemed. That is right. Go back to her original family. And if she does, if he doesn't meet those three things, she's allowed to leave without repayment of the bride price and go back to her family and hopefully start over. So this most definitely is not, let me sell my daughter for extra cash. This is, I want my daughter to be able to have a family of her own. And without an agreement like this, since we can't afford a dowry, this probably wouldn't be possible. Yeah. So again, I'd ask before we move on to the next one, uh, what could we learn from these ancient uncivilized primitive people? (laughs) Right. I say that ironically in case you couldn't tell about in view, uh, investing in the future of our, uh, you know, the next generation and families. It's an important decision. People take it lightly now. Marriage. Yeah. It's it's important. Yeah. Um, I have one thought, but I'll I'll save it for a later law. Let's see. What time are we at? 28. Okay. Verse 20. We'll skip ahead just a little bit. When a man strikes his slave, again, you know, take it for what it is male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. So off the bat, if you kill one of your servants or indentured servants, it's capital punishment. You know, in when you think about, like, real bad slavery, do you get capital punishment if uh, through heavy-handed discipline you kill your servant? No, that's not what would have happened. So that's not, uh, the death penalty applies if you kill your servant. Uh, but if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. Literally it's, uh, for the slave is his silver. And it means like, right, that his servant, uh, since he owns like that contract, this person working for him, he may have invested a lot of money. And if he, uh, in fact, later, uh, I, I didn't find this. This was in the Lutheran study Bible notes. If somebody maims his servant, uh, through discipline, then that servant gets to be released. So I wasn't, it didn't link me anywhere, which sometimes you get frustrated with the notes in the study Bible, but yeah, so if you maimed your servant, then they would actually get to go free. Uh, so discipline is allowed, and at times discipline, right, it, it is necessary. What yeah. text are you on? Uh, this is verse 20. Oh, if it's not of 21, then it's yes. verse 22. It is, it's 21. Okay, 21. chapter 20, verse uh, 20 and 21. Yeah. Yep. 21. Yep. And then, uh, so then verse 21, but if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. So discipline is allowed, but of course, murder is not sanctioned. And in some situations, right, the master is given the benefit of the doubt if it was considered accidental or unintentional. So maybe you did go, you know, again, if you invested a lot of money and somebody is pushing their limits of like, now I'm not working today, whatever. I'm sure corporal punishment was allowed, but it's almost like, I don't know, this isn't a perfect example, but you get one punch homicides. You know, you can talk to cops who have seen this. Somebody pushes, you know, even just a push or shove and somebody trips and smashes their head on the concrete. And then the next week they die of whatever you call it, right? Bleeding in the brain, they die in their sleep. Well, that person, according to our law, they're on the the hook for murder, you know, maybe manslaughter, but it depends on the, on the uh, state, 
he didn't intend to kill the person, so we're not going to execute him. And that's kind of the same thing here. But um, the financial, if it's deemed to be accidental, then his punishment is you, you invested a lot of money in this indentured servant. And now, right, you lost your investment. So that's not, it's not diminishing the, the view of the, the life of the person. But there's also, we should note, um, they had established judges, even in Exodus. You know, everyone's going to Moses for all these things. And Moses sets up uh, judges as, as the heads of the clans. And they would, would rule on trials and conflicts. And they would listen to both sides and make the decision. And if they couldn't, if they needed to appeal to Moses, that's when they would bring disagreements to him. So it's not that there wasn't a trial system or anything like this. These are these are guidelines. All right, now another fun one. <clears throat> Chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So again, here you go. I'm straw typing the online atheist says, see the, in Exodus, it says basically rape is legal and you can just rape somebody. And then worst case scenario, you have to marry him, which then she's basically your property anyway. Well, again, that that's definitely not what's going on. It's not rape. This is once again holding up a high view of marriage. And then the father, who ought to be the primary protector of his daughter, is able to protect his daughter from having to marry the guy if he deems him predatory. Or let's say she comes to daddy and says, look, daddy, he's not who I thought he was. Please, no. Then he can love and listen to his daughter and say, no, no, no. And he, this man, still has to pay the bride price. So it both expects the man to kind of say like, you want to step up and pretend to be the husband here? You know, something that's supposed to be reserved for, uh, um, you know, between our high view of marriage. All right, you want to step up and be husband? Be one. <clears throat> you know, there's... In our culture, it's so tough because we have such a low view of marriage kind of uh, just all over the modern world. I mean, I'll, I'll even say it, right? I mean, it's a cheap, pathetic view of marriage and the relationships where they look at sex as cheap or free and essentially meaningless. So they would look at this and say, oh, that's so terrible. They're pressuring them to get married where really the reason you would say that is because you come from a place where you hold such a low value of these things. Whereas here it's like, actually, yeah, we do expect you to step up and you want to play husband, then you better act like it. But <laughs> if you're not even good enough for that, then you still have to pay the bride price and she's not forced to become your husband or wife, sorry. And wouldn't so, that also require the male to take it more seriously because he would have to pay the dowry that he would give somebody else? I mean, it's it's you wouldn't go into, like what they're talking about, basically, you wouldn't seduce somebody you wouldn't intend it because that was going to cost, could potentially cost you all the money <laughs> that your family has saved for the bride price. As I mean, much as laws are deterrence, you know, yeah, that, that's true. Um I mean, the different people, different time. Yeah. I mean, they had more respect for things than we did. Yeah. Yeah. Like on some level, you know, strict laws are deterrents. And on another level, when a criminal is doing something or like if you're in the heat of the moment type deal, <laughs> your prefrontal cortex is not running through the, you know, the consequences of this is this or that. So anyway, we do have 10 minutes. So. Uh, any other questions or thoughts about problem laws? I think hopefully even if nothing else, just that the fact that slave is probably not the right translation of what, you know, 
or buy and sell. It's like, yeah, there's there's money changing hands because they're investing in the future. Um, yeah. I like that you've made clear it really is as much as anything an ordering of society than it is uh, the, the way we think of slavery, as you say, you know, as uh, capturing bodies and using them, you know, means yeah. it's really kind of an order to people who need help and as servants and the people who need help as employment. So it's, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. And actually today's reading was, well, Romans 6, uh, but Paul talks about the slaves to sin, right? And, uh, and being set free from sin and now being slaves to righteousness. I may be fusing a few things here, but like the, the ironic thing in that is being slaves to God, slaves to righteousness is freedom. It's the most free that any human can be. So, Jonathan, on translations from from the original languages, do they use something else besides slave that would, I mean, is that the English translation made every slave be such a... Here, uh, yeah, again, like I, like I said, sometimes it's servant, uh, sometimes, I, mean, I don't know, you could be, it's the one that would, that's tough in general, in, I think in particular, is the when a father sells his daughter as an ama. So it's like in some way, yeah, so she's now part of this new family and she's been betrothed because that's what's going on. She's been betrothed either to him or the master's son. So there's going to be a new family started. But in its most basic sense, it's saying that you have money changing hands and there's this uh yeah how else do you translate ama because it's not slave that's clearly of course she's expected to be a productive member of this new family she doesn't get to wouldn't be expected to go there and just kick her feet up on the table and be taken care of um so as much as women help support the family she'd be expected to do those things I just wonder if the English yeah. translation, I don't, that's the word they yeah, pulled out. I don't know. Like, it has such a different connotation. Yeah, it definitely does. I don't think English is appropriate. And I would I would not be shocked if the, um, the reason that so many translations stick with slave is because that's the way it had been. And they're afraid of getting accused of skirting the text. Oh yeah, there's still places, there are places in the world where they, and I would definitely take it too far, you know, to where there are arranged marriages or, um, yeah, this very type of thing, but it is looked with a low view of the female role, which, I mean, even just go back to the beginning, back to the garden, you know, God didn't have a low view of Eve, um, and actually throughout, the funny thing is talking about Exodus, Exodus is full of the women being heroes. From the very beginning, you have the female, you have the midwives. And the midwives, simply through humbly serving God, are able to uh, upset Pharaoh's plans. And it was a very bold thing to do, but they were sneaky about it. Uh, then you have Pharaoh's daughter, right, who rescues Moses and all of her ama, you know, her uh, uh, female servants that were with her. Yeah, Moses' wife. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, of course, Moses' wife. And in fact, so five <laughs> minutes, that's a good transition into, I told the story last week and I'll read it real quick. But the hero of this story becomes Moses' wife, Zipporah. So this is after Moses and the burning bush and um, so God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, you're going to go back to Egypt and set my people free. And uh, he gives them five excuses. He's like, oh, I don't, uh, what if they don't listen to me and 
uh, or they, they don't believe me. So he gives them signs and then he says, oh, my tongue is slow, right? I don't speak well. And he said, uh, and this is the most telling thing. Uh, I, this is beautiful that in response to that, God says, look, your brother Aaron, he speaks well and he'll help you speak, right? I'll put words in his mouth just like I'm putting words in your mouth. And he's already on his way. So this is the most profound thing. Aaron wasn't a concession to Moses because Moses was arguing with God. Aaron was always part of the plan. God had accounted for Moses's weaknesses and used Moses's weaknesses as a really bad public speaker, one who was slow of tongue and of mouth, right? Uh, and already provided for that. And it was actually in the fact that Moses was uh, probably this nervous public speaker to start with. Maybe he stuttered, who knows? But imagine this stuttering guy going up to Pharaoh and like, well, you know, and then saying these bold things, maybe through all the stuttering that's like, you know, let my people go or God's going to send these plagues. Um, yeah, it's it's in just like Paul says, right, in his weaknesses that weren't it wasn't a moral failure that he was bad at speaking. And, you know, and then God doesn't say that, like, look, Moses, you're perfect for this job. He doesn't say you already speak Egyptian. You're in you already know a bunch of people in Pharaoh's cabinet. So you're fluent in Egyptian and you speak Hebrew. You're the perfect guy for this. Yeah, Moses doesn't, or sorry, God doesn't talk Moses up. He actually, uh, he just says, look, I'll be with you. Now go and, and do these things. And he had already provided for uh, Moses. And you know what? We're, we're getting pretty close to time. And I'd like to spend more than two minutes on this one, but I'll, I'll set it up. And then maybe, what is next week? Does anybody have the, yeah. what is next week's topic? Hardened hearts. I have heard hearts. Oh yeah, of course. I typed that up real fast. In my defense. <laughs> yeah, I did want hardened hearts. Um, no, we're going to use the full hour. In a couple of weeks, we'll come back to this, but I'll, I'll set it up and then you can read this story. And dwell on it and see what you come up with uh, in the weird circumcision story. So Moses, he, he's actually heading back to Pharaoh finally. But first, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. So he doesn't necessarily lie to Jethro, but he's not telling him the whole picture. It's almost still like he's... He's not sure, and he's uh, he comes up with what might be a reasonable excuse. Instead of just telling Jethro that God told me to do this, and I'm going to go do it, and I trust him. Where are you reading from? Uh, this is, oh yeah, Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. So then 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Uh, here's a literary link to when, so now all the people seeking his life are dead. So he's going down to Egypt. And Jesus, as a kid, right, they fled to Egypt to get away from Herod. And when all the people seeking Jesus's life were dead, he went out of Egypt back into uh, the promised land. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my firstborn or let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So that's where we'll leave it, both because the next story is the weird circumcision story, uh, which you can read on your own, and also because next week we're going to talk about hardened hearts. So with that, we are at 46. Um, let's, let's end in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your many blessings. We ask that you 
uh, bless the whole nation right now, uh, dealing with um, extreme cold weather. Um, we ask that you keep us safe. And you know what? We, we often, we should thank you for, um, for weather events that we can recognize that all goodness comes from you and that all provision of life comes from you when we too often rest on our own understandings, on our own might, on our own infrastructure. Um, at any time through your great power, you could destroy the world <laughs> and justly so. But that is not the God who you are. Uh, you, you care for us. So we ask that in that you also bless your church and that we boldly proclaim how you have saved us out of our slavery of sin to find freedom in being slaves to you, slaves to righteousness through your death, through your son's death and resurrection. In his name we pray. Amen.